Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. So it's Palm Sunday. So I, I want to talk um, this afternoon about Palm Sunday. We want to, going to read the passage out of Matthew. And in particular, I want to talk about what, what the story, what this, what this event in the life of Jesus offers us in terms of modelling a different way of being. Um, there's many things you can draw out of this story, but this afternoon I just want to focus in upon that. So I'm going to read um, from Matthew. This is a story that's in every gospel. Um, and in every gospel, the title which has been added is, you know, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. So Jesus is enacting a kingly um, thing as he rides into Jerusalem um, on this donkey. So Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 to 11, this is what it says. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a prophetic thing from Zechariah. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. I I like this image because in this bit there's two donkeys. I'm like, which one did he sit on? Like it says, say, put the cloaks on them. And and he... Yeah, anyway, it's a strange image. Best not to worry too much about the details. (laughs) A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so we have this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and it has overtones and echoes of Old Testament prophecies and the the words that the people shout out are words from one of the Psalms. And so it's kind of like, it's, it's written in all the Gospels as this, as like a prophetic act that's tying together the threads of scripture that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's coming in as a form of kingly expression. But it's not the kind of kingly expression that the people are used to or what they expect. Um, It's not what historically has happened when other people have claimed to be king and it's very different from all the ruling authorities that are around Jesus at the time. Um, A great great, um, post that Jared McKenna often puts up on Palm Sunday, he, he puts this post up and it says, when the world expects a war horse, show up on a donkey. 
And it's this idea of like, you know, if you imagine in war, like we're seeing the war in Ukraine and Russia, it's all tanks. Like the, the movement of Jesus would be to ride in on that tricycle <laughs> instead of on a tank. It's a, it's a radical departure from what's expected. It's the opposite of the powers of empire and religion, that he comes in this completely um, subversive way. And as you look at this story and you, you kind of read into it, you see that Jesus is almost, this is almost like an enacted parable that Jesus is doing, or it's like political street theatre. So Jesus is, is doing this with intention and deliberateness. This wasn't like, oh, I was walking to Jerusalem and I stumbled across a donkey and I happened to hop on and then all of a sudden all these people just started like cheering for me. That That's not what happened. Like you see in this passage that Jesus deliberately sends his disciples. He set the thing up. Like he's he knows that there's a donkey in her cult. He knows the prophets. He knows what's going on. And he makes this happen. So this is like a prophetic act of Jesus. This is a statement that he is making with his person, with his body. It's a it's a protest in a way against the ruling authorities. And it and he's 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 bringing the people with him. Um, in their own way, even though I don't think they really know what's going on. And I think it's only really in hindsight that people have made sense of this, this part of Jesus' life, why he did it like this. It was really not unusual in the, in the day of Jesus for heroes and kings and leaders to ride into cities. Like it wasn't strange that Jesus did this. In fact, this was not an uncommon event that would take place. Certainly within um, the Roman Empire, um, there, was, there was a thing called the Roman Triumph. And so a lot of the Caesars would want to make as many triumphs as possible. And they would do this in Rome. So they would um, ride in on their chariot with all of their military around them and all their symbols up on poles. You, 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 I don't know if I've got a picture of something. I might. Um, they did this whenever they conquered something. It was like the, it was like the, the, the ticket parade, you know, like after, is that what it's called? Ticket. Why is it called that? All right. Anyway, it's like that. <laughs> it's <laughs> Julius Caesar. This is where um, I came, I saw, I conquered comes from. It, you know, this was Julius Caesar riding in to Rome. It also was not uncommon for this to take place outside of Rome. And so there's historical speculation. I don't know if speculation is the best word, but there... Um, there's evidence that at the start of every Passover in Israel, so Passover was one of the most political um, celebrations in the Hebrew calendar because it was the celebration of the liberation of God's people out of Egypt from slavery. Um, 
it was the celebration of the destruction of Egypt's power over Israel. It was a very political time. If there was ever going to be an uprising, if there was ever going to be a rebellion, if there was ever going to be nationalistic fervour that came out, it was going to happen at Passover. And the Romans knew this. And so at the beginning of Passover, the ruler of the, you know, the, of Rome's ruler in um, Judea at the time would leave where they lived. They traditionally lived in Caesarea and they would go to Jerusalem and they would parade in on their horse with their military, with their symbols. And it was a public act of saying, see who's boss here. You are an occupied people. We are military might. You are not. So it was like a deliberate like fear tactic that they would do to march into the holy city at the time of Passover with a declaration of God is not king, Rome is in charge. And so there was sort of understanding that historically this is what would happen at the time of Passover. And at the same time we have at the time of Passover, Jesus doing a similar thing but in all the opposite ways not riding in on a war horse, not riding in with symbols of war, not riding in with anything other than the humility of a donkey and the local people throwing their coats and their palm branches on the road in front of Jesus. It's a very kind of opposite movement that Jesus is doing. The other thing is this idea of riding into Jerusalem or riding into a town um, ha- also has precedent in, the, in um, Jewish history. So I don't know how much you know your history in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there was a lot that went on in those 400 years of silence. Primarily what happened is the Greeks came in and took charge of all the known world, Alexander the Great, and they put their puppet rulers all over the world. So the area of Jerusalem and Judea was ruled by the Seleucids, like they were the Greek ruling authority within the space of Jesus's geographical time, before the time of Jesus. This is like 160, 170 BC. Now, the Greeks were not very kind to the Jews. At least the Romans let the Jews practice their own religion. That was kind of like a kindness. The Greeks squashed all Jewish religion. They erected um, shrines to Greek gods in all over the countryside. They desecrated the temple. The peak of that was um, the ruler um, slaughtering a pig on the altar in the temple. That was like, so a pig is an unclean animal in, you know, Jewish religion. And so the height of It's called the abomination in Jewish history, is this slaughtering of this pig. Well, at the time, what happened is rebels revolted from the Judean countryside, primarily the Maccabees, and they violently started to do guerrilla warfare around the the Greek-occupied places. They were being violent to the Greek authorities and they were being violent to any of their fellow Jews who they considered to be complicit with the Greek authorities. And then they ended up winning a local skirmish war and Judas Maccabeus rides into Jerusalem on a horse to cleanse the temple. And in, um, I've got it written down here, in 1 Maccabees, um, maybe I don't have it written down. 
Anyway, in the, in the book of Maccabees, it talks about him riding in with palm branches and hymns and songs of praise. This is 164 BC. So surrounding Jesus' time, they've got Roman power, empire might, riding into cities on war horses, declaring ownership, power and authority. But in their own history... They've got rebels rising up in, under religious power and authority and riding into cities, declaring, you know, kingship. And so it, this is a thing that was happening. And it's in the context of these expressions, in the cultural memory, in the what's common, that Jesus does this very subversive act of riding in on a donkey. And... As I've been reflecting on, on this, this story this week, I've just been reminded again and again how Jesus is always offering us a different way of being and a different way of living that is not the way of empire, that is not the way of power. It is not the way of worldly power and neither is it the way of religious power. Jesus offers a different way. It is not a violent way. It is not a way of conquering. It is not a way of posturing and superiority and grandiosity. And it's not a way of of power in the way that we think of power. But the way of Jesus is the way of peace. It's the way of surrender. It's the way of lowliness. It's the way of humility. And this story that anchors today, our Palm Sunday, is a reminder to us that our way of following in the footsteps of our Messiah is not a way of power and violence and domination, but a way of love and gentleness, of surrender. And and I want us to just lean into that this afternoon because Jesus embodies another way and he's always inviting us to follow in in his way, not the way of empire, not the way of the world, not the way of religious power, not the way of grandiosity, not the way of lording it over other people or conquering, but the way of peace. Last month, um, I don't know how how closely you follow the news, but um, last month in Sydney, in... um, at St. Michael's Church in Belfield, which is in southwest Sydney, Mark Latham was invited to speak at the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, why, I don't, well, why, Mark, anyway. And even this week, there's been some very tasteless um, things from Mark Latham in the news. That's an understatement. So, Mark Latham was invited to speak at this church, St. Michael's in Belfield. And Mark Latham is known for his stance, very anti-LGBTIQ, very vitriolic towards that part of the community. And so 15, 15 LGBTIQ protesters gathered outside the gates of the church just to protest Mark Latham's presence there. Peaceful protest. Um, I'm not sure what they were doing. I'm Yes, I had placards and not long after that, hundreds of 
Christians who are a part of a far right-wing movement called Christian Lives Matter show up and surround these 15 people and pelt them with rocks and bottles and scream at them, violence in the name of Jesus Christ. This is not the way of Jesus. This is happening not far from where we live. This movement of militancy is still happening in Christianity. And it is the opposite of the spirit of Jesus. It is the opposite of what Palm Sunday is all about. That we do not conquer. We surrender. We do not dominate. We love. We do not fight. We lay down our lives. This is the way of Jesus. And so I wanted to highlight, I guess, for us, because it's sort of like this thing I've often found, like, you know, live like Jesus. Well, what does that actually look like? I think sometimes it's hard to imagine. What does it actually look like to live in the way of Jesus? For me personally, I need to hear stories and stories and stories of how other people in their life have fleshed out what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus. Because when I hear these stories, it helps my imagination of what it looks like for me to live in the way of Jesus. And I think we as people of God need to constantly be hearing stories, not of people doing famous, amazing things, but of simple, subversive ways that people who are faithful to Jesus are reimagining what it looks like to to follow Jesus, to follow um, the, the riding of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. So I've just, I've just picked three. I want to share three examples. Just There are three things that I've been sort of listening to lately or connecting with. The first example I want to talk to you about is what we, we focused on this this morning in our contemplative service, but it, it's the desert fathers and mothers. So... The Desert Fathers and Mothers are a group of people that kind of started in about AD 270 and spanned probably a couple of hundred years. They were a movement of people who out of their faithful obedience to Jesus and a desire to live a different way, left the city and moved to the desert and lived, some of them lived in caves and lived a very austere life, like stripped of everything. Others um, lived in monasteries. But their movement was a movement away from power and empire. This was happening at a time where Christianity had traditionally been a persecuted religion for the first couple of hundred years after Jesus had died. Things were changing in the Roman Empire. And not long before the, not long after the first people moved to the desert, the first edict was passed that you could no longer be persecuted for being a Christian. So, the thing, the culturally things were changing. Then, not long after that was when Constantine had his vision in the sky of the cross: "You will conquer in this sign." It is bonkers because it's the opposite of the way of Jesus but he then took that and slaughtered everyone but anyway they could see that the both the church and the world was no longer like they they was no longer anything that looked like the way of Jesus 
And so they did this radically opposite movement where they sold everything they owned and moved to live in poverty in the desert. And out of this tradition of people doing this, a rich monastic kind of way of life began to evolve in Christianity. It was almost the beginning of the Christian monastic movement. But they... They had this kind of like alternative way of thinking, these desert fathers and mothers. They believed that radical change came through silence, not war. They believed that inaction was the most powerful source of action. They believed that productivity could be measured by obscurity and invisibility. They had a radical alternative way of living and their movement was one from like the cosmopolitan cities and busyness and chaos of ordinary life into the desert, the places of silence and stillness and solitude. And so these desert fathers and mothers, there's a rich wisdom tradition that sprung up out of this place. It's, we were looking at it this morning. But these, these ordinary everyday people, the, the way of Jesus that they wanted to model that looked so different for them was a retreat from the chaos of the world to the place of the desert. That was their movement of faithfulness. That was their movement of radically embodying a different way of living. I'm not going to move to the desert. That, that's not how I feel called to model my alternative way of living. But, but there, it, that is a, a movement that was present. For many people. Another person I want to tell you about, you may have heard of, may have not. Her name is St. Louise de Marillac. She was uh, born in 1591. She died in 1660. And she was the co-foundress of the Daughters of Charity. Has anyone heard of the Daughters of Charity? A few of you might have heard of it. She was raised in the French countryside. So she was a young French woman. Her... um, her, her mother had died. She was raised by her father. She was raised fairly educated and reasonably wealthy. When she was 15 years old, her, her dad died, leaving her orphaned and destitute. Um, not, a, not probably a really happy thing to happen in, 15, in the late, you know, <laughs> at that time. She ended up marrying um, a man who was the secretary to... The queen of the secretary to the household of the queen of France. So she married in order to kind of like be okay. Um, It seemed to be a happy marriage. She had a son, but then her husband died before she was thirty. And at that point in her life, she'd obviously experienced a heck of a lot of grief and loss in her life. Very unsettled, and she wanted to really seek God for what the next season of her life might look like. Again, wanting to live in the way of Jesus. What does it look like for me? I don't know. I'm going to seek God. Then she met um, Father Vincent de Paul and she struck up a friendship with Vincent and he became her spiritual director. And she knew that she didn't want to remarry, but she wanted to dedicate her life Um, to following Jesus and so she became part of the circle of St Vincent de Paul's aristocratic ladies who served in the slums in Paris so they would volunteer their time and they would give their money they were wealthy women 
who wanted to do something about the destitute and the extremely poor people in Paris at that time, so they would do it. After doing this for a little while, she just kind of had the sense that this isn't really something you can just do part-time. Like there's too much need for, the, for, for us to just be rich ladies doing this kind of part-time on the side of our other life that we live. And so she, together with um, Vincent, formed the notion of a community of women who were completely committed to the poor. So they began like a, a kind of monastery called the Daughters of Charity. But it, this was a very different kind of monastery to the idea of the desert fathers and mothers leaving the city and retreating to the desert. This was the opposite. They were going to be a community of women dedicated to God and committed to God who would not retreat from the world. They would not have a convent. This is part of their thing that um, her and St. Vincent wrote. Our convent will be the house of the sick. Our cell will be a hired room. Our chapel, the parish church our cloister, the streets of the city, or the wards of the hospital. And so her radical movement of embodying the alternative way of Jesus was not one of retreat from the world, but one of radically living within it, in the poorest of places with the destitute, living a life committed to following Jesus, a radically embodied alternative to what was going on at the time. And now there are more than 50,000 sisters of charity scattered all around the world, people who don't retreat to the convent but live in the midst of the poorest and destitute to love them and serve them and radically embody this other way of Jesus. The third person I want to tell you about, um, his name is Gino Bartali, there he is there, good old Gino. He won the Tour de France in 1938. Who knew that? Did you really? Okay. So he's an Italian cyclist. Um, he won the Tour de France in 1938 before helmets. Um, and it almost looks like he's wearing sandals, but I'm not sure that he is. But anyway. He's got his feet tied. His, his feet are tied on. Anyway, so he was a, an Italian cyclist, and obviously he was uh, came to fame and won the Tour de France right before World War II. Mussolini is the head of Italy at the time. Now I don't know how much you know about Mussolini, but apparently he really liked to consider himself. Uh, athlete and a sports person, and he he kind of instigated all this, like because he was. He was a bit of a dictator. Um, <laughs> he instigated all these kind of like physical activity regimes for the people of Italy. He was just like, he was really like keen on athleticism. And he like, in all the propaganda you see of Mussolini, he's often like looking like an athlete because he wanted to be seen as an athlete. So he had massive like buy-in on an Italian winning the Tour de France. And so Gino Bartali comes in and he, in 1938, crosses the line in, in Paris with the yellow jersey on and Italy wins the Tour de France. And everyone, there's this massive pressure on Gino to um, dedicate his win to Mussolini. 
because and to de- and to basically to say that the the Aryan race so they they agreed that all Italians were part of the Aryan race that they were superior this was the evidence we just won the tour de france so there's this massive political pressure on Gino to be on the side of Hitler and Mussolini and the the kind of development of this very racial Aryan superiority. He was a devout Catholic and wasn't going to do this. So he he won and instead of doing what he was supposed to do, which is like celebrate Mussolini and say, look, it's because I'm Aryan that I won and I'm so, like this is the superior race. He just thanked his supporters and basically said nothing. The next day he took his um, winner's wreath and he laid it on the altar in the Cathedral of Notre Dame as a dedication to God. He then goes back to Italy as a hero, but because he did not, um, because he didn't um, say all of the things he was supposed to say, they stripped him of all celebration. So when, when he arrived back in Italy, no one was allowed to celebrate him. So he just goes back to the countryside, a winner, but an uncelebrated winner. Then obviously, World War II is ramping up and the persecution of the Jews is ramping up and it starts to happen in and around where he's living in Italy. And he's quite actively involved in helping his local Jewish families to escape as the pressure starts coming from both Hitler and Mussolini and the movement of the war. As time progresses, um, he continues this work but he became known for saving hundreds and hundreds of Jewish lives and this is how he did it. He would ride his bike, he would go pick up falsified documents and papers, he would unscrew his handlebars and his seat posts, he would shove all these papers down inside the frame of his bike. He would don his lycra, he would head out to ride the the roads of Italy on a training ride because he was Gino Bartoli he was waved through every checkpoint because he was the local hero and he would then deliver all these papers to different places where Jewish people were hiding it was great risk to his own self because he was ever found it would have been he did this sometimes riding 500 kilometers a day his wife didn't even know he was just training here is someone who took the, the thing of their life and turned it into a way to radically live differently, to the powers, to say no, there's a different way of being. And he, his was a different movement. Like the desert, fathers and mothers moved to the desert as a, as a protest movement from the powers. Um, you know, Louise... She moved differently. She moved into the thick of the mess, into the poor and the destitute and the slums of Paris. And Gino rode his bike for Jesus. It's, there is no one way to live the alternate way of Jesus Christ. It's a path that lies in front of all of us. And I think the invitation from Jesus to each one of us is to simply take who we are and what we love and do it as an alternative way of living. Do it as a retreat from the powers of the world which would try to coerce us into their forms of living. Do it as a way of humility, as the way of love, as 
the way of grace and gentleness. This is the invitation for us on Palm Sunday. I want to finish by reading one of the the sayings of the, the desert because I think it really taps into this idea of how do we know how we live? How do we know what it looks like for us, for, for you to live different? What does that look like? For each one of us, I think it looks differently. Here's one of the sayings. One of the monks asked the great teacher, Abba Nastero, what should I do for the best in life? And the Abba answered, all works are not equal. The scripture says that Abraham was hospitable and God was with him. It said that Elias loved quiet and God was with him. It says that David was humble and God was with him. So whatever path you find your soul longs after in the quest for God, do that and always watch over your heart's integrity. And I think it's a beautiful saying that invites us into this radical imagination of what it looks for each one of us to live the way of Jesus, to live the way of resistance to empire, to world, to powers. What, what is it? It's going to look different for Jessamy, for Luke, for Wayne. It's going to look different for all of us because we're different people. There is no one way to resist There's a thousand micro ways to live the gentle, loving, humble way of Jesus. And that's what Palm Sunday pushes us to consider. And so just as we're finishing tonight, what I think would be really good for us to do as an act of imagination is for for us just to share maybe in groups of three or four, like what are the ways in which you know that you attempt, even if it's like small attempts or failing attempts or to just live the, a radically different way of Jesus. Like what are the things that you do that move in the opposite direction to empire? What, what is it that you feel this pull towards from the powers, whether it's commercialism or individualism or materialism or all those things that are the powers of our world that seduce us to their way of living and yet we're called to live the radical way of Jesus? What is it that you in little and small and humble ways that you do to just find that humble way, that opposite way of Jesus, that upside down kingdom that we're called to. So how about we just take a few moments to to share with one another and then I'll gather us back in together and pray. Uh, there... There is no one way. I think this this afternoon I wanted to just inspire our imagination back to the subversive way of Jesus, back to living a different way, following a different kind of king, walking in the footsteps or the donkey steps of Jesus, not the war machine, not the conflict machine, not the powers, but small, insignificant, hidden, humble acts of resistance in little, little ways, it does, like I, just small things. Let's keep living in the way of Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to live 
the way you called us to live. We want to let go. We want to lay down our lives. We want to give away. We want to surrender. We want to resist non-violently. But we find this hard. Help us, Jesus. Would you keep um, birthing in each one of us and in our community an imagination that's deep and rich and creative for all the ways that we can follow you, Jesus? Would you help us this Palm Sunday, we pray. Amen. Well, bless you. Have a wonderful Holy Week where circling ever closer to the cross and on Friday evening and then Sunday morning we'll be celebrating together as a community and really living out this story of this man that we love, Jesus. And so come and join us if you can. It will um, be lots of fun, both, both gatherings. And yeah, may your imagination in the quiet moments of this week just be sparked for how you might continue to follow the radical way of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.